Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is the episode for May 4th through 10th, Mosiah 11 through 17, A Light That Can Never Be Darkened which is perfect for the gospel of Jesus Christ because it truly is a light that can never be darkened. Um, we're talking all about King Noah and Abinadi this week. And I'm going to give you a heads up, like even just studying the materials this week, there's so much gorgeous spiritual stuff in here that I've just found myself like just bursting into tears several times because I'm just so touched with Abinadi and what he stood for and the passion that he had for the gospel. So if I burst into tears, I'll try and edit it out. But just, you know, you, you've been warned. You've been warned, right? Okay, so <laughs> King Noah and Abinadi is a story that my family has visited many times as I was growing up. And the reason for this was because one of my younger sisters, King Noah, was her favorite person in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> I'm not even making that up. Like, literally, for years, King Noah was her favorite person. And it's so funny to me because that's kind of her personality is kind of like, you know, I do what I want. So everybody else is saying, Nephi and stuff, I'm going to pick King Noah. And so that's what she said. I really think, though, that where she got King Noah as her favorite character in the Book of Mormon actually came from, it's the Arnold Freeberg painting that we have of Abinadi before King Noah, um, Abinadi appearing before King Noah. And you've got Abinadi and he's like elderly with like white hair and he's like totally ripped, like super buff, like the buffest old guy I've ever seen probably. And he's in front of King Noah and King Noah has like the jaguars and stuff like around him, or I guess cheetahs. I think they're jaguars because they're more Central America. But anyways, so I think it was the jaguars that hooked her on King Noah. She was like, if I get to be King Noah, then I would have these cool jaguars hanging out with me all day. And I think that's why she probably picked him. But so King Noah was one that we talked about a lot in our family. I think my parents were probably trying to dissuade her from deciding that King Noah was her favorite Book of Mormon character. And I think she has since then moved on to other favorite scripture stories. But Just all that to say is that King Noah and Abinadi is a familiar refrain for for me from my childhood. And so we go into our lesson this week for Come Follow Me. And I love the first line of our lesson. It says, large fires can start from a single spark. Large fires can start from a single spark. And I think sometimes when we are feeling maybe like we're being underwhelming or when maybe we're really intimidated by something that we've been asked to do or a calling or, you know, something that we're going through in our lives, we need to remember that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. And that's one of the most beautiful stories of Abinadi in King Noah's court is that by 
what would from the outside look like maybe his experience there in the court was a failure. I mean, here's this guy, he comes in, he's only there for a little while, and he prophesies, and no one immediately believes him, and then he's killed. I mean, to the outside world, that would look like a failure. But we know instead he was actually incredibly successful, and we're going to talk about that. But it's amazing to me the times in our lives where we have to stand up, or maybe we don't even know that we're standing up. Maybe we're just like living our life and we're setting off those little sparks here and there. We never know when that little spark is going to take root in someone and kind of blossom into a spiritual flame. So that is one of my favorite morals of the Abinadi story. All right, going back with Come Follow Me, it says, and this is in the introduction as well, it says, his testimony of Jesus Christ, talking about Abinadi, who is the light that can never be darkened, sparked something inside the young priest Alma, and that spark of conversion slowly grew as Alma brought many others to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that is something that has always fascinated me, is, again, it looked like a failure, but because he was able to bear his testimony and that kind of caused the flame to burn in Alma, how many people is Abinadi responsible for converting? You know, with that one testimony that seemed, or that one, I guess, experience of him testifying in King Noah's court, which seems like failure, he actually is responsible for converting a lot of people. So after a quick Google search, you know, I'm a big fan of the Google, um, I found a really awesome blog. It's called Riley as Himself. And Riley as Himself has actually gone through the scriptures and he has made a list of, let's see how many this is, 48, 48 different times that Abinadi's testimony impact people and cause them to convert to the church. We're going to read through it real quick, okay? Here we go. So number one, Alma the elder believes Abinadi. Alma then goes forth and baptizes 204 people. Later, that group of 204 grows to 450. The people of Limhi are converted and baptized by Alma the elder. And after the the elder's prayers, an angel is sent to his son and the sons of King Mosiah, ultimately leading to their conversion as well. Alma the younger baptizes 3,500 people. He preaches and baptizes in Zarahemla. He preaches and establishes the church in Gideon. He preaches and baptizes in Melek, Melek. Alma meets Amulek, who joins the ministry. Together they preach in Ammonihah, and many believe and repent. They baptize Zeezrom. They preach and baptize in Sidom. I think that's Sidom. Meanwhile, the sons of Mosiah preach to the Lamanites, and initially a few believe them. Ammon teaches King Lamoni's household, and they are converted. They testify to the people, and many believe and are baptized. Ammon and Lamoni free Ammon's brothers from prison, and they in turn bring many to the gospel. Aaron converts the Lamanite king's household. The Lamanite king protects the sons of Mosiah, and they convert thousands. The Lamanite converts that were converted previously refuse to defend themselves from their attackers, and more than 1,000 of those are converted. The Lamanites attack the Nephites, and many of them remember the teachings of the sons of Mosiah and are converted and martyred. And after the fighting ceases, many Lamanites join the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Alma the Younger has three sons, Helaman, Shiblon, and Corianton, who all eventually become righteous men. Alma, Amulek, Zeezrom, Shiblon, and Corianton, and three of the sons of Mosiah convert many Zoramites. The son of the anti-Nephi-Lehi converts become the stripling warriors under the command of Helaman. Helaman also has a righteous son named Helaman as well, who's converted. The second Helaman has sons named Nephi and Lehi. Nephi and Lehi baptize 8,000 Lamanites, The brothers are taken prisoner, but after they are miraculously saved, 300 of their captors are converted. 
These converts teach and convert most of the remaining Lamanites. Lamanite converts convert many Nephites. Nephi preaches and prophesies from his own tower, and five former skeptics are converted due to his testimony. Others believe the words of these five. After a war and a famine, the whole face of the land is converted. A Lamanite named Samuel begins a mission to the Nephites. Many believe Samuel and are baptized by Nephi. Nephi has two sons named Nephi and Timothy. And after the sign of Christ's birth, Nephi preaches and baptizes many. After Gadiant and robbers attack both Nephites and Lamanites, some are taken captive and repent. Many fall away from the church, and Nephi converts only a few, but he still converts a few. Nephi has sons named Jonas and Nephi, and after Christ visits the people, he calls Nephi, Timothy, Jonas as disciples, who form a church and baptized all the people upon the face of the land. Nephi has a son named Amos, who cares for the record of his people. Amos has a son named Amos and Ammaron, each of whom in turn care for the record. And Ammaron delivers his record to Mormon, who abridges it. Mormon entrusts it to his son Moroni, who concludes it. And as an angel, Moroni leads Joseph Smith to the record, who translates and publishes it as the Book of Mormon. Though Joseph Smith and through Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, the church and all of its members can come unto Christ. So literally, because of Abinadi's testimony, back then, we are members of the church now. Without Abinadi testifying there in King Noah's court, we would not have Moroni and Mormon and all those other people who are in the Book of Mormon who are part of bringing these records along. We would not have them. I mean, is that amazing? Like that spark that was there... It helped bring forth the Book of Mormon. I just, I think that is such a cool thing. And when we feel like we are failing, when we feel like we are struggling fruitlessly, to know that what we're laying down could possibly be the foundation for a really wonderful work, just like Abinadi did. So that was a little bit about how successful Abinadi actually was, even though he seemed like he he was not. Okay, so I want to talk for a moment about who Abinadi was, because that was one of my questions. Again, a lot of my experience with the Benedi story had been from, you know, that one painting by Arnold Freeberg. And I think a lot of us have had that experience with that same painting because it's in like the primary gospel art kits and stuff like that. So I think culturally, we tend to believe that Abinadi was like an older dude. I don't necessarily know that he was. He may have been, right? I found this really awesome article that was in the Ensign 1992. It's called, let's see, Abinadi, Prophet and Martyr by Robert J. Matthews, and it's in the April 1992 Ensign, and I will put put this link out on my Facebook and also on my blog, so you guys can go look it up, but it's, it's really interesting. He says that Abinadi holds a singular place in the Book of Mormon as he was the first to actually die as a martyr. Also, his doctrinal teachings, they clarified the purpose of the Law of Moses, which we've had a little bit of previously, but like this is the first time where it's really laid out like this is what the law of Moses is for, right? He also identifies the Redeemer and declares facts about the doctrine of the resurrection that we currently have not seen in the Book of Mormon. The really cool thing about Abinadi he mentions in this article is that Abinadi was an amazing speaker. And Robert J. Matthews actually says he was capable of exquisite language sparked with fiery metaphor, yet was plain spoken to the point of bluntness. 
And I, you know, it's one of those things. I'm like, did he learn that somewhere? Did Abinadi learn that somewhere when he was growing up? Or is that something that naturally came to him? It was a gift he naturally got from God. And then God kind of emphasized as he was there in King Noah's court. You know, capable of exquisite language, sparked with fiery metaphor, yet plain spoken to the point of bluntness. I don't think anything else would have reached a young Alma in King Noah's court except for that kind of speaking style because of the lives that they were living and because of how hard their hearts had gotten. But yet we still have his words here, you know, more than 2000 years later, and they're still beautiful and they still spark fiery metaphors in our own heart. Abinadi was also interesting because he confronted this wicked establishment, a wicked kingdom single-handedly. He walked in knowing that this was not going to go well, The spirit probably led him and helped him, you know, with a little bit of that bravery and having courage to go in and walk and face, walk in and face, you know, this entire, I guess, kingdom. It's an entire kingdom, guys, like an entire kingdom. Think about walking into like the entire state of Georgia and like trying to convert them to Alabama football. Like, I mean, (laughs) like it's that kind of thing. He just, it it would be really scary and really hard, right? The record gives no hint of any other prophet being present with him. So he was flying solo, as far as we know. He converted one man, yet that one man, Alma, became the progenitor of a posterity that kept the sacred records and served as ecclesiastical leaders, and sometimes the political leaders, for the remainder of the Nephite history, a period of well over 400 years. Without Abinadi's story, the Book of Mormon would lack continuity, and a major part of the book's message would be missing. And that's Robert J. Matthews. All right, so let's talk about Abinadi himself. We know nothing about Abinadi's early life. Arnold Freeberg has given us an outstanding painting that depicts the Abinadi we read about as an old man, thin and weather-beaten. He's not thin. He's totally, like, got big muscles. But anyways, continuing on. It may have been so, but we find nothing in the record to indicate whether he was old or young, large or small. What we do find in his teachings and in his manner when confronting the priests of Noah, baiting them, challenging their knowledge, questioning their behavior— is a man of courage with an agile mind, a profound knowledge of the gospel, and a strong personality. Um, And that's one of the things that I was most impressed with when I was actually going through and doing the reading this week, is I was like, you know, Abinadi knew this gospel. He knew it inside and out. He could sit up there and stand in the court of King Noah and recall scriptures from Isaiah verbatim. Like, this was not something that he was just doing on the fly or that had come recently to him. This was a lifetime of study that had prepared him to get to this point. Um, you know, and so I was I was just amazed at the knowledge that Abinadi had. Okay, so that's all kind of like a setup about Abinadi and, you know, who he was and things like that. Let's jump actually into Come Follow Me, and we're going to unpack his story a little bit more. Um, the first section says, I can stand for truth even when I stand alone. It says, imagine how discouraging it must have been for Abinadi to cry repentance to a people who did not seem at all interested in changing their wicked ways. His message was rejected again and again and again, yet Abinadi never gave up. When have you felt like you were standing alone in defense of the truth? Okay, so I was trying to think about that in my life. Um, you know, of course, I'm like every day that I live in my home where I'm the only member of the church, like that's, I feel like I'm doing that. But, eh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know that it compares to Abinadi. Um, one of the experiences that I've had recently is I have, you know, I have a 14 year old son and he's very much in the teenage mindset of like, I know everything. And also like, let's see like how we can wheel and deal each situation to make it come out like better for like himself, you know? 
Um, And sometimes that means like the moral ethics tend to slide back and forth. So I'm working really hard to make sure that those moral ethics tend to be um, a little bit greater than perhaps he would naturally encounter. Um, And we see examples of this multiple times where like, you know, I'll walk out of a store and I'll have a bottle of nail polish. Oh, they didn't scan this bottle of nail polish. I have to go in back in and pay for it. I'll be like, it was a dollar ninety nine. Like, why are we going back into the store? I'm like, because we got to do this. We, you know, I have to be honest with everything that I do. And I even said, I have to be honest in dealings with my fellow man. Like, you know, the exact phrase that comes out of the Temple Recommend interview. And he's like, well, why do you say it that way? I'm like, well, because I believe that's a standard that I need to live up to. And so this is what we're doing. You know, we're going to take this $199 nail polish thing back into the store and pay for it because I feel like it's that important to be honest with everyone who I'm around. And we actually ordered a wheelbarrow recently from Lowe's and we went to go pick it up and it was outside with a bunch of the other wheelbarrows and we go out there and there's like a $120 wheelbarrow and then there's like the $80 wheelbarrow. And we had bought the $80 wheelbarrow and the girl goes to pull the $120 wheelbarrow out to give it to us. And I'm like, whoa, 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 no, 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 we, we bought the $80 one. We need that one instead. And my son in the car was just like, why do you do this? We could have had this amazing wheelbarrow. It has two wheels. I wouldn't have had to balance it, you know, going on like that. And I'm like, sorry, dude, I've just, I've just got to be honest. Like that's just a standard I've set for my life and I've got to live up for it. And so his little 14-year-old brain doesn't quite comprehend it right now, but I truly believe that I am leaving sparks there, that when he is in a situation where he's like, oh man, I didn't pay for this Coke or something that's like left in his grocery store buggy, he'll be like, oh yeah, my mom would go back in and pay for it. I probably should too. You know, especially years down the road when he's kind of grown out of this teenage knothead phase that he's going through. Um, So I see you know, little ways like that, like not standing up like in front of a giant wicked kingdom and testifying of Christ. I hope I'm never actually called to do that because that would be really scary. But in just little ways that in my life, the way I live and what I stand up for, I see is standing up for truth. I saw a really cool news story this week. It was in the church news and it's about a sister missionary who stood up for truth and a kind of community that was not necessarily super receptive to the church, and she stood up for truth in a very interesting way. This is an article from the Church News on April 17th, and the title of the article is Why This Sister Missionary Coached a Volleyball Team and How It Impacted a Small Alabama Town. Well, of course, you know, immediately I'm like, Alabama, they're talking about the gospel in Alabama, so I go and read it. All right, so here's here's the situation. Camden, Alabama is about four hours to the southwest of where I live. Um, For my Alabama people, it's like southwest of Montgomery. That kind of gives you an idea. And so there's a sister missionary there. Her name is Megan Sinte. I hope I'm saying her last name right. It's S-I-N-T-A-Y. And she happened, before she came out on her mission, happened to be at Dixie State on a volleyball scholarship. So apparently she's a very good volleyball player, right? And she's from Pleasant Grove in Utah, And she helped her volleyball team at Pleasant Grove High School in Utah to a pair of state runner-up finishes. So obviously, she's got a history of being really good in volleyball, history of helping her team become really good in volleyball. Well, so she's in this little kind of community of Camden, Alabama. And she says she's six foot and three inches, so (laughs) really tall. And it says she stuck out in Camden, a small, rural, tight-knit community 
about 75 miles southwest of Montgomery with a population of 1,800 and a branch of 20 to 30 active members. The heart of the town is Wilcox Academy, a private Christian school. It's a community that is predominantly Baptist, although a fair-sized Methodist community is there as well, says President Chad W. Allred, president of the Alabama-Birmingham Mission. Woo-woo! I love the Alabama-Birmingham Mission. Okay, it's a little place that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has not been overly well-received. And it's also a place where baptisms and even lessons are hard to come by. Shortly after Sister Sinte and her companion moved to Camden in May 2019, Church members found out she was a volleyball player and told her the girls' volleyball team at Wilcox desperately needed a coach. They asked if she would be interested in helping. I told them, no, I'm a missionary. I don't spend my time doing that, Sister Sinte recalled. A member of the Camden branch called the mission president, who was then President Stanford C. Sainsbury, and he was instantly on board. Sister Sinte was surprised. Sister Sinte started by holding a few camps during the summer. Then I kept staying in Camden, transfer after transfer, so it just ended up being that I was there for the whole volleyball season, she said. She worked alongside head coach Larry Huckabee, who was hired soon after she began helping. None of the girls on the volleyball team were Latter-day Saints. Before matches, the girls would often recite the Lord's Prayer. Before one match, Sister Sinte offered to pray. Then some of the girls began offering their own prayers instead of a recitation. So, okay, pause. This is Lexi talking, not the church news article. So you have a sister missionary who's there, and not only is she setting a good example for the girls and like, hey, I'm on a mission, but I'm still working with you guys and everything like that, but she's literally teaching these girls how to pray. Like, did you notice that? You know, something I've noticed in the South is that sometimes there is a tendency for there to be recitation prayers, especially in public places where you're not really sure what everyone's denomination is and you don't want to offend everyone. Um, I've had people in different groups and meetings and stuff that I've been in even pull up prayers from the internet and just read the prayer. Or they've got a prayer book and they just read out of the prayer book. So that's a very common thing. But her te- showing these girls, by example, this is how you talk to God. I think is a really cool moment. And then the girls start doing their own prayers instead of just the recitation. All right, continuing on with church news. After practices, Sister Sinte would share a spiritual thought with the girls from her own scripture study. I love this. I love this. Okay. She says, I tried to be a really good influence just because there weren't a lot of good influences in Camden, she said. There weren't a lot of positive role models. Little by little, President Allred said the community started to embrace them. As she devoted time to the girls, she built rapport with the community and broke down barriers one by one. Okay, pause. I'll tell you, in some of these smaller Alabama communities, especially rural areas, where people have lived in that area for generations of family, and everyone tends to be like somehow related to the other ones, like they're all distant cousins and like five times removed from this family, but this family is that in-laws. And I mean, it's, it gets kind of like crazy, but it is hard to break in. Um, that's an experience that I had this past year with going to a smaller rural school is breaking into like this tight knit community and getting them to kind of accept me. And the way I did it was the same way she did it. You know, you make friends with the kids, you show the parents that you are truly there for the kids, that you truly love the kids. And all of a sudden they're like, okay, well, I'm going to start letting down some of my barriers here. You're not here to judge me. You're not here to try and change me, but you're here to love my kids. I guess that's okay. And so I think that's the approach that Sister Sinte took. And I think it's really, really good, good approach. 
Okay, continuing on with the article. It says, it went from the girls to the families and from the families to the community. Now when you go into that community, President Allred says, it's a whole different spirit, a whole different attitude there. Elder Martino said of Sister Sinte's experience, you're never going to read this and preach my gospel. You're never going to see the instructions to do something like this. But here was a mission president and a missionary that felt prompted and acted upon it, and it made a difference. After nearly 12 months in Camden, by the way, I don't think I've ever heard of a missionary staying for almost a year in one area. I think that's really pretty cool that she did that or was able to do that. Sister Sinte was transferred last month to another area in the mission. During her time in Camden, Sister Sinte said she grew spiritually as well as professionally and gained confidence. And so I'm going to stop there. You guys can go back in and read the rest of it. But I think that's just such a cool story. You know, the Lord prepared her by having her, you know, these great talents that she's been blessed with, and then taking that talent, adding the gospel to it, and then putting her in a place where maybe not as, you know, aggressively anti as King Noah's society was, but she was still able to infiltrate and start leaving those little sparks of testimony. And who knows what her example in front of those girls may lead to later for those girls and their families in life. You know, who knows whether that example that she set there in Camden now opened up the doors to many other families accepting missionaries and not being so wary of them. You know, I just, I think it's so cool. What a cool story that is um, of her teaching a, or coaching, I guess, a volleyball, a high school volleyball team and the difference that it made. I just, I love that story. And it reminded me a lot of Abinadi as like a latter day kind of corollary to what Abinadi did with King Noah's court, you know? So that's what it reminded me of this week when I was, you know, studying Abinadi and going through where this section in Come Follow Me, where it says, I can stand for truth even when I stand alone. You'll notice, I mean, I'm sure Sister Sinte's companion was around somewhere during the practices. I'm sure she was probably in the bleachers or talking to parents or something like that. But for the most part, Sister Sinte was there with the girls, like flying solo. And she has to stand up and say, hey, so here's the volleyball skills, by the way. (laughs) This is like a spiritual thought I had this week. I mean, you know, she had to rely on herself. She couldn't say, oh, and my companion has the spiritual thought. You know, I mean, this was her. And are we prepared to do that? Are we prepared to go into situations where we have to fly solo like Abinadi did? You know, that's something I've been thinking about a lot, too. And okay, it asks a few other questions here in this section. Um, I feel like we've kind of answered it. What principles do you learn from Abinadi's example? How can you be ready when the Lord needs you to stand up for his gospel? We've talked about that. So we'll move on to the next section. Um, Okay, this one is from Mosiah 12, 19 through 30. I need to apply my heart to understanding God's word. Okay, I had had an interesting take on this this week. Um, Come Follow Me says, King Noah's priests were familiar with the word of God. They could quote passages of scripture and claim to teach the commandments, but those commandments were not written in their hearts. They had not applied their hearts to understanding them, which is what we see in Mosiah 13.11 and Mosiah 12.27. As a result, their lives remained unchanged. So they knew all these gospel truths, but they weren't living them. And even though they knew them, they weren't applying them to their lives. It reminded me a lot of the Pharisees that we see in Christ's time. You know, we studied last year in the New Testament where they knew back and forth 
the law of Moses. Like they'd even added stuff to the law of Moses. They knew it and they were following it, but was their heart being converted by the law of Moses? No, it wasn't. And that's actually what Abinadi says to the, to the, not the Pharisees, to the guys in King Noah's court. (laughs) He says, And now I read unto you the remainder of the commandments of God, for I perceive that they are not written in your hearts. I perceive that you have studied and taught iniquity the most part of your life. So he's saying, and not only do you guys know these commandments, but you're not following them, but uh, also you're just being wicked, guys. Like you're just making bad choices. And in Mosiah 12, 27, he says, You have not applied your hearts to understanding. Wherefore, you have not been wise. Therefore, what teach ye this people? Okay, so if we have the law of Moses... I'm saying we, but I actually mean like, you know, the people there in King, King Noah's court and Abinadi's time. If they have the law of Moses, why do they have the law of Moses if they're not living it? And Abinadi even asks them this, and this is in Mosiah 12, 29, he says. And he said unto them, if you teach the law of Moses, why do you not keep it? Why do you set your heart upon riches? Why do you commit whoredoms and spend your strength with harlots? Yea, and cause this people to commit sin. And the Lord has caused to send me to prophesy against this people, yea, even a great evil against this people. So he says, if you know the law of Moses, why aren't you keeping it? Okay, so why did they have the law of Moses was the question I was I was pondering upon. Why do we have the commandments? And I started thinking, you know, the law of Moses was kind of like training wheels to get the people ready for Christ, Right. And then in some weird way, especially, and I'm thinking about this is the ancient Jerusalem type law of Moses, they got so focused on those training wheels that the training wheels became like the big parts of their lives instead of learning how to ride the bike without the training wheels, which is what Christ's gospel was, right? They became so focused on those training wheels. So if the commandments for us are training wheels, what is it that they are trying to teach us? You know, if God gives us a commandment to do not kill— Okay, that's the commandment. What are we supposed to learn from that? Well, number one, killing is bad, right? Of course. But the greater lesson that we can learn there from that particular law is that life is precious. And we should not only take our own lives, don't take them for granted, but also protect life when we can. What are some of the other things that we can learn from the other commandments? Another example can be found in Mosiah 12. Um, Mosiah 12, 35, where Abinadi is quoting the commandment, thou shalt have no other God before me. Well, okay, so we don't want to place anything before God, but what are we supposed to be learning about that? That God and his will and his gospel need to be our priority, that there doesn't need to be anything else in front of him. Um, In that particular time, in 36, he says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or things which are in the earth beneath. Like, don't make idols and worship idols. And necessarily, I don't think we have an issue with that now. I don't see people carrying around goat statues or anything like that. But I think our issue now is that we have symbolic idols. You know, do we place money ahead of God? Do we place spending time with our video games ahead of, you know, learning and progressing spiritually? Do we place, you know, different things ahead of where we need to be? And that's the lesson that I see applying from that commandment. So just from thou shalt have no other God before me, we can learn that God needs to be our first priority and progressing towards him and becoming like him and becoming what he wants us to be needs to be our priority. So do you see how like we go from like training wheels to like learning the gospel? And I think that's what that jump from the training wheels to like riding the bike on our own is the jump that I think that the 
priests of King Noah, I don't think necessarily that they couldn't make it. I think that they chose not to make it because if they chose to actually put the time in and learn the gospel and follow Christ, it means that they would have to change their ways. And they were pretty happy and pretty comfortable doing what they were doing. And I think that they wanted to stay that way. So that was something I thought about when I read that section this week. I need to apply my heart to understanding God's word. And so then I need to go back and look at the other commandments and see you know, what am I supposed to learn? What's the bicycle lesson that this training wheel is supposed to be teaching me? And so it was just interesting for me to go in. Um, one of the things that I really thought about was, you know, thou shalt not covet. I was like, well, why, why shouldn't we covet? What's, you know, the bicycle lesson that we're supposed to get out of that? And I started thinking about, you know, I've got a bunch of friends who have brand new houses. They're gorgeous and beautiful. And every time I go over, I'm like, oh, I wish I had a brand new house like this. It's so pretty and it's so nice. Blah, blah, blah. And I come back and I'm like, why is that not okay? Because I come back with eyes that look at my own stuff and I'm like, oh, I really don't like my house. I really don't like this. And I get really upset and grumpy and I'm like, that's not how it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be grateful. This is the house that I have been given. This is the house that I purchased. This is the house that, you know, my family lives in. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for what I've been given and what God has given me and allowed me to have. And that's the bicycle lesson that I learned this week from that training wheel of thou shalt not covet. You know, to be happy and to be grateful to the Lord and grateful for everything that he has given me and not to covet other people's blessings, you know, but to covet my own blessings, to want blessings from God and to continue my relationship with him. So I don't know. That's kind of where my mind was going this week was bicycles and training wheels, I guess. All right. So the next section of Come Follow Me, I want to talk about, oh guys, we are just blowing through time. My goodness. Okay. So the next section I want to talk about is the Lord will sustain his servants in his work. On the one hand, Abinadi's experience give multiple examples of how the Lord supports his servants. You can find several such examples in Mosiah 13, 1-9. Let's look for examples of how the Lord supported Abinadi. An example I saw was Mosiah 13, 3, where he says, Touch me not, for God shall smite you if you lay your hands upon me. For I have not delivered the message which the Lord sent me to deliver. Neither have I told you that which ye requested that I should tell. Therefore, God will not suffer that I shall be destroyed at this time. And that even reminds me, going back into the previous chapters, there are several times where Abinadi kind of popped up and was like preaching stuff. And then the people came after him and then he kind of like went away. And then, you know, a year or so later, he pops up again in disguise and he's teaching stuff. And then the people get really mad and he kind of like disappears again. Um, You know, I see that as, you know, his days are numbered. The very hairs of his head are numbered and they will not be less than what the Lord has in store for him. The Lord protected him and the Lord brought him out of those dangerous situations multiple times because he was saving him from the most dangerous situation of all. And I have to think that that was a really scary time for Abinadi to go in front of the court of King Noah. Um, But even though it was scary, what an experience to gain a testimony of Christ that deeply and to be able to express it. You know, one of the talks, conference talks from a couple years ago that has made like a big impression upon my heart, and you probably know this because I talk about it like multiple times, but it's The Immediate Goodness of God by Kyle S. McKay. And I'm like, man, that name is familiar. Oh, yeah, Kyle S. McKay is the one who gave the prayer in general conference that I really, really loved. That was about, you know, Christ was sent not to condemn, but to save, and we need saving. Kyle S. McKay, good stuff. I hope to hear more from Kyle S. McKay in the future. 
but he talks about the immediate goodness of God as we are waiting for God to deliver us. There's still good things in the meantime. And so I have to think for Abinadi. Abinadi knew, I believe, that his end was coming. He knew that his days were numbered by God, that God would not let him die before he was supposed to, but that he would be with God soon. And what were the immediate blessings in his life? You know, the scriptures don't actually say, you know, that he was strengthened by angels or anything like that. They don't say that it was an amazing, miraculous experience in his own heart to testify of Christ. Or they don't say, you know, maybe God gave him courage or maybe the spirit was there to support him through this. Or maybe, you know, it wasn't quite as painful for him. God found a way to make it not quite as painful for him. Or, But I have to believe that maybe not necessarily those things that I've said, but I have to believe that there are blessings there because the Lord blesses and sustains his servants when they are about his work. I don't know what the specific blessings were for Abinadi, but I know there had to be blessings there. There was an immediate goodness of God present with him as he stood before King Noah and his court. And I know for those of us who are going into situations like that, where we feel like we are standing before King Noah and his court, there are immediate goodness of God blessings there with us as well, and things that we can learn from those situations that we couldn't learn any other way testimonies that we gain, spiritual strengths that we get that we wouldn't have any other way. And so that's what I saw. The immediate goodness of God is really what I thought about when I thought about that section in Come Follow Me. They say specifically, how does Abinadi's example affect the way you view your callings and responsibilities? Well, you know, most of the time, my callings, I've been pretty happy with. I've been like, okay, cool. That's fine. You know, whatever. Um, I'll do that. That sounds great. And I'm generally pretty happy about my callings. The one that I think that has been hardest for me probably was, you know, about two years ago when I was called to be primary president of my ward. And I was like, just floored, just like flat out floored. Um, and I immediately told the bishop, no, like, no, you know, and it took me a good I don't know, a week or so to wrap my head around it to really be like, okay, so this is something I can do and I can do this. And um, it was tough. And I was primary president for about a year before I was called to the state primary presidency. And in that year, I don't necessarily know that I was the best primary president ever. I think, in fact, the one that we have now in my ward is actually probably way better than I was, the one that replaced me. But I think that there were immediate blessings, immediate goodness of God blessings in that time where I was trying to strive so diligently to become the primary president that he needed me to be. One of those blessings was this podcast. I had been a primary president for about six months when I started this podcast, and I think that this was a blessing. The inspiration to do it was a blessing from my Father in Heaven, um, because the podcast has been a huge blessing in my life. Um, The way that it has forced me to delve into the scriptures each week and the insights that I've gotten from it have been invaluable to me. I mean, incredibly valuable. Um, I also saw a deeper love for children. You know, I had been working in my job previously as a middle school librarian. I'd been working with teens. I've always really loved working with teens. Um, I really enjoy being around them, even in their snarky, not-headed state of being. I, I like I being around teens. But kids, I was like, oh, I don't know that kids is my thing. And so even when the bishop called me to be primary president, I was like, no, no, no. Now, I think you mean like young women, young women's president or laurel advisor or something. I'm like, I'm much better with them than I am with like the little ones. He's like, no, no, we want you for the little ones. And so that year, 
of being around those kids and developing a love for those kids and saying, oh, I really like actually working with this age group prepared me for when my job transferred me to an elementary school. And that was an immediate blessing and an immediate goodness of God in that situation, that calling that I did not want and did not feel qualified to stand up in. There were blessings there. And I find that there are blessings anytime we stand up and we do something for the Lord. There's immediately immediate blessings. Um, you know, I think about President Nelson talking about in the conference that the Lord loves effort. You know, he could have told Moses, hey, hang out there on Mount Sinai. I'll come halfway down the mountain. You come halfway up. I'll meet you in the middle. But no, he had Moses climb all the way to the top of the mountain. And then Moses had this amazing experience. So I think there are times in our lives when we're going through something really hard. There are blessings there that we could not get any other way. Abinadi going through this, he was strengthened in ways that we can't even understand. He gained testimony inside, I'm sure, in ways we can't even understand. And Abinadi trusted the Lord to deliver him out of the situation. And even though his deliverance was by way of death, still he was delivered unto the Lord. Um, You know, my mom and I have a joke that everything will be okay, but the Lord's version of okay sometimes is dead. (laughs) you know, which is a little scary. It's a little morbid. I know that we we joke that way, but we're like, you know, everything will be okay. But you know, sometimes okay in the Lord's version is dead. Um, And in this case, it was okay was dead in this case. And, um, but still when he got to the other side, can you imagine what the meeting must have been like between Abinadi and Jesus Christ? The person who Abinadi had just been testifying of for days in a really hostile setting, seeing him face to face. Can you imagine what that was like? I can't. I can't without bursting into tears. I have to think that was so amazing. That is the immediate goodness of God, that we grow, that we become more like him, that we become closer to him. Sorry, guys. I know I got really emotional there, but just like I said, the spirit this week has just been so strong about these chapters and just the way... um, the things I was thinking about the way God's blessed my own life and also the way he blessed Abinadi. So there's one last section. I mean, there's a couple other sections in there that y'all can go in and read and, you know, think about and ponder and stuff like that. But there was one last section that I really loved. Um, It's the very last section and it's down among like the ideas for family scripture and family home evening part. It says, these verses describe what would happen to God's children if Jesus had not come into the world or if they did not follow him. What are the good things that happened because he came and atoned for us? See also the video, Why We Need a Savior. So the verses that it's referencing um, are very like hellfire and this is why we need a savior, which is true. We need a savior to be saved from that. But the verses that I found in this week's reading that really touched my heart when it comes to this, why we need a savior, um, is because we do not have a gotcha God. Like we don't have a God that says, hey, you never heard of my son, Jesus Christ, so sorry, you're out for all eternity, right? We don't have a God that says that. And the verses that I found this week in this week's reading was Mosiah 15, and let's start with 21. And it says, And there cometh a resurrection, even a first resurrection, yea, even a resurrection of those that have been, who are, and who shall be, even until the resurrection of Christ, for so shall he be called. Okay, so pause. So number one, number one, first thing is that we all are resurrected. That's a free gift. Free gift to everyone is a resurrection, right? So we get that because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, let's continue on and see what else we get. What else have you won behind door number two? All right, here we go. Other, other prizes we get from the atonement. 22. And now the resurrection of all the prophets and all those that have believed in their words and all those who have kept the commandments of God shall come forth in the first resurrection. Therefore, they are the first resurrection. They are, and this is 23, they are raised to dwell with God who has redeemed them. And thus they have eternal life through Christ who has broken the bands of death. 24, and these are those who have part in the first resurrection. And these are they that have died before Christ came in their ignorance, not having salvation declared unto them. And thus the Lord bringeth about the resurrection of these, and they have a part in the first resurrection or have eternal life being redeemed by the Lord. And 25, and little children also have eternal life. All right, so we have a God that just because you've been born and you've never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you aren't, aren't automatically out. You still have a chance to be with him after this life. You still have a chance to learn about him after this life. We also believe that little children have eternal life, that the atonement has redeemed them. Um, we don't have the belief that, you know, if they die before they're baptized, they're immediately cast out as well. Um, there are some religions that believe that. And I'm so grateful we don't believe that, that our little children are perfect and that they are immediately with our Savior. Um, what beautiful big blessings those are to know that we have a God that loves us and knows all the contingency plans. And I think he will use every single thing he can to get us back to him. I don't think he has the attitude of, oh, you messed up this one time, so you're out. Sorry. I think it's going to be like, oh, let's see what we can do to fix this. Like, I think he's going to try every single thing he can to get us to come back to him. We will have to stand before him and confess our sins that we do have, of course. But I think he's going to try as hard as he can to help us make it right. Um, I believe he loves us. I believe your Savior loves you. And that's where I want to end, that God loves you. Your Savior loves you. You are loved. I hope you guys have an awesome week this week. I hope you're healthy and well. I love you guys. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash said. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.